0: Can you, can you smell it? Spring is finally here. It's in the air. It's nice, isn't it, Jackie? It is nice. You know what it means, Jackie? You know what spring means? Not just sun, but it means romance is what it means. It means engagement. Marriages are going to start happening. It's time for nervous first-time couples to take their sunset walks on the beach and swing on swing. You know when you see adults swinging on swings, you know they're in love, because they wouldn't do it for any other reason. (laughs) It's that time. It's when the single gal will go to the coffee shop, hopefully, or the party to find that one guy, that one special person that's out there waiting, a soulmate. They're looking for the one. But when you talk about soulmate, is there really such a thing? I mean, that's the question. Is there really just one person out there for you? You could ask it like this. Do you, do you believe in love at first sight? Is romance the way to pick a spouse? And if not, what is Actually, I, re, I was reading this week that Reuters conducted a survey. They had a, actually a pretty good uh, survey group. And I asked the question to Americans if they believe in love at first sight. The percentage of Americans that do is almost 60%. Six out of ten believe in love at first sight. Steve, you believe in love at first sight, don't you? See, I saw you nodding your head. I'm not sure if Brent does too much. Do you, Brent? Was Kelly your first one? You were in my youth group. First one you fell in love with? Absolutely. So maybe it runs in the family. You guys are part of the 60. Hey, Kelly, do you believe in love at first sight? (laughs) So, do you believe in that that first look? You'll feel that warm, gooey sensation, that hunch that I know that's the person. Is that how people really find their their soulmate? It reminds me of the sentiments of this popular song. I said in the first service, I still believe it's one of Jared's favorite songs. It's, it's sung by James Blunt. It's called You Are Beautiful. If you know the song, it's got over 400 million hits on YouTube. Four, so it's a good song. You know what it is. It's about a man who sees a girl across on a subway, catches her eye, and he knows that she was meant for him. And if you hear the song, as even the first four notes will make you cry. It starts off like, dun-dun-dun-dun. He says, my life is brilliant. Oh, he's a great singer. So it just grabs you. But in there, he says this, yes, she caught my eye as we walked on by. She could see from my face that I was flying high, and I don't think that I'll see her again. But we shared a moment that will last till the end. It's a great song, isn't it? If you watch the video, it ends up she is with another man, and he knew he had no chance with her is one true love. So in the video, he jumps off the cliff and kills himself. It's a great song. It's a heart-wrenching tale of unrequited love. Is that all we can hope for? That you have one person out there and the way you'll know it is by a feeling, a look, a movement of your heart. Is that what marriage is about? A feeling and a look and a movement of the heart? Or, or, is there a better way to choose a bride. That's what we're going to talk about today. title is Choosing a Bride. Open up to Genesis 24. We'll read the first 11 verses. And this is an amazing story. Begins in verse 1. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I'm living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I'll give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left. And camels, it's going to be a long journey, like six to seven hundred miles away through arid desert. And camels are very important to walk through that. So he took ten camels. It's also a sign of wealth. It's also used for dowry taking with him all the kind of things good for his, from his master. He set out for Aram Neharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward the evening, the time the women go out to draw the water. So that's the setup. This is the beginning of a beautiful but ancient love story. It's wonderful. But if if you're reading through this with, I would say, a modern mind, and, you know, often you need to read it as you hear it. A lot of times we read the Bible just assuming that, yeah, okay, it's good. But if you read it with a modern mind, it doesn't play right. Like, it doesn't sound right. The son must trust his father's servant to pick his bride. That never works. Seriously. My dad tried setting me up on a blind date a couple times. And it was bad. Like my dad's taste is bad, not my taste. I often say my dad likes little chubbier girls. You know, it's just bad. It's a bad, bad deal. In this story, Isaac completely trusts his dad. But you know, you gotta ask the question what if she's ugly? What if she's not his type? What if she had a limp or a big nose or man hands or what if she snorts when she laughs? I mean, What if she snorts when she laughs? Kind of embarrassing. Little things matter big time when it comes to romantic attraction. And if you don't believe me, ask Derek Max if you ever see him. He'll tell you why. The biggest question I think most people would have, though, from our day and age is we would ask that question. Can you really love a person when the marriage is arranged? Can you really love somebody that's through an arranged marriage Marriage, where's the, there's no candlelight dinner though. How am I supposed to know if I love him? Where's the dancing to spark the heat? Whatever happened to the flood of the heart for poor old Isaac? When he sets his eyes for the first time on his soulmate? It all depends on how you define the word love. Really? There's three words, you probably heard me say this before, but it's probably been preached. There's three main words for for the word love in the Bible. You have eros love. Well, that's actually not in the Bible. But we use eros love in our culture as the prime way to talk about love. Eros love is the Cupid love where I shoot the arrow at your heart and it's like you're all of a sudden a love potion hits your eyes and little, you know, hearts float up. That's eros love. You have phileo love. That's brotherly love. I love somebody because I've been tracking with them for a while and I have a respectful kind of love. And then you have agape love. Agape love is God's love. And because He first loved me, I can love others. It's unconditional love. It's a love that's given to me from above. So if you love at first sight, that's eros love. But if you don't acquire agape over time, eros will fade fast. I also think... um, But I'd also say this, too, is that so does Phileo Love. Phileo Love, I knew this couple that was, they were married for about seven years. And they really respected each other. They were rich. They were young lawyers. And this guy was on a snowmobile, and he was snowmobiling through a blizzard. He hit a parked car, flew off. The snowmobile landed on a fence on his neck, became a paraplegic. His wife left him in six months. That's phileo love, and it won't last. Agape love lasts forever. But here I also think one of the reasons we ask this question is because we view marriage differently within the way the Bible talks about it. I think we view marriage in a contractual way. I make an agreement with the person, they make an agreement with me, And it's before the state. We write on a paper, so therefore the state validated it's good. The Bible talks about marriage as a covenant. So the two types of marriage in the Bible it's a covenant. And then what normal people think of when we talk about marriage is a contract. And these are vastly different. A covenant is acknowledgement that God is involved in marriage. He cares. So he sustains it, blesses it. He'll even discipline you if you're disobedient to your marital vows. The reason is God wants to fill the earth with God-fearing people. And the way he's designed this is based on a marriage commitment that involves him until death. So you can say this. The aim of this type of marriage is primarily to please God. It is really all about him. So I need to consider the long term. I need to even consider the eternal ramifications as I choose my spouse. That's huge. In this story, Abraham demanded his servant find a wife from his own people and not the Canaanites. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, he's addressing his servant by saying, we are here to please God. Look what he says. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, the God who made man. Remember at the beginning, God took Adam, made him out of clay, took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. It's kind of in reference to that the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I'm living, but will go to my country. And then in verse 7, he says again, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. So what he's saying is the reason why he doesn't want Abraham to marry a Canaanite is because in The Old Testament, a couple chapters before that, God cursed Ham, who's the father of Canaan. So he didn't want to marry somebody from a cursed land. And then he promised him, if you live in this land, you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. So what Abraham wanted to do is choose a spouse for his son that had the blessing of God. And it's not just a blessing now, it's a blessing for their children and their children's children. So a covenant lasts multi-generations. That's why it matters who you pick. It's generationally important. I would even say it's eternally important. In contrast to this, a contract is all about me. It's just about pleasing me. It's not about obtaining a generational blessing It's not about avoiding curses. It's just about how I feel when I'm with this person. And modern marriage has become this agreement to hopefully keep that feeling going and going. Hopefully I'll be happy the rest of my life. A little bit, you know, it'll last a little bit longer in a few dates. So I'm looking for someone who'll make my life happy. And how you view marriage, how you view marriage, you view dating will depend on how long you hang in there. In this story, we can also see a few things about somebody who sees it as a covenant as compared to a contract. First of all, it's how you see God impacting the decision-making. First of all, in a covenant, your family's opinions matter. They really matter. Abraham's opinion, the father's opinion mattered. It's just not about you. Hopefully you have a good enough relationship with your family that you will take their advice. Marriage is a long time. So is eternity. Isaac trusted his dad, and his dad wanted the best for Isaac. So verse 2, he said to the chief servant, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to find a spouse for my son. He cared. A good father cares, but a good son or daughter will listen. And the reason why is because God wants you to choose wisely. And your parents have been around the block. They've seen what's wise and what's unwise. And that's why they give advice. Especially what to avoid. In this story, we also see God leading. In the covenant relationship, God really cares. And because he cares, he will lead you. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household, my native land, who spoke to me and promised me a oath, saying, take your offspring, I'll give you this land. And it has a dash, and it says, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife from here. So God's sovereignly in control of the process of selecting a wife or a husband for you. He cares. It's his design. And then when God leads... He gives evidence that he's leading. Look at verse 12. Then he prayed, this is the servant, O Lord God, my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. Verse 13. See, I am standing beside the spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says drink, and I'll, have wa- I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you've shown kindness to my master. And then look at verse 15. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethel. And she, in verse 17, says, Please give me some water. And she said, Drink, in verse 18. Look at verse 21. This is about the servant. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made this journey successful. So he's looking from signs from God that this is the one. It matters to be led by God. That's what happened to my wife and I. That's what she did when she first found me. When we were going through Moody Bible Institute, we passed each other and we kind of had that glimpse of the eye. And so Kelly asked to a degree, I do believe in love at first sight. I do. But I think it was especially more important for her when she saw me. You know, that's the guy. That's the guy. So here's what she did, and this is true. This is what she did. She went to uh, an old yearbook where my picture was, put it on her dresser, and prayed before God, and she said, if this guy, if this is the guy, let him make the first move. So she'd pray that. For two weeks, she said she prayed over that picture. And I'm telling you, it was weird. I saw her everywhere I went from that time on. I did. It was crazy. I don't know if she set it up like that, but everywhere I went, there she was. And then one day I'm at the library. I had to write a 10-page paper. She's sitting two tables down, and I could not write one word. I couldn't write one sentence. And I could tell God, saying, go talk to her, introduce yourself. And I said, God, this is like evangelism. You're setting it up, but I still got to do it. I don't want to do it. I went up to her and I said, hi, my name's Chris. I'm a pretty shy guy. She said, my name's Michelle. I said, hi, I'm Chris. And I took off out of the library. (laughs) It was great. It was really good. And now the rest is history. But from a covenant point of view, but from a covenant or a contractual point of view, marriage is all about hormones. It's all about hormones. How that person makes me feel when I see her smile under the pale moonlight. Or how she looks in cowboy boots on the side of the road hitchhiking and then sitting in the back of my pickup truck. <laughs> or, you know, that guy when he's in blue jeans and he's shirtless and he's throwing heavy logs in the back of a Ford F-150. Now that's law. Our whole world, our whole world is about hormonal attraction. Every movie, every commercial, every song. It's white people Instagram post. It's the reason most women buy their shoes. It's all about hormones. I'm just telling you. And I'm telling you, our hormones are selling us all down the river. They're killing us. If you are a parent, your child is choosing a spouse merely by hormones, they will often walk around in the house like they're drugged. They will stare into their phone, and they will squeeze their lips like they're ducks. <laughs> I still don't get it. I don't understand it. I, I really don't get it. Acting untouchable and blasé like a lifeless model on a magazine with that RBF look. in parents, if you don't know what that is, ask your kids. And they will listen to nothing you have to say, and then the person they bring home will probably drive you crazy because they're more caught up in their looks than they are about their character. But remember, remember, a contract is all about feelings. Bruno Mars says, and when you smile, the whole world stops and stares for a while because you're amazing just the way you are. Now, that's the reason to get married because look at that smile. It doesn't last long, I'm telling you, especially when the baby wets its diapers. It stops smiling. The second reason about, the second thing about a contractual. In a covenant, we let God alone. A contractual, since it's about me, I'm, I'm responsible to find somebody. And now we have every app you can download to find whoever you want. It's, uh, it's such a man-contrived thing. You know, you get this one app called Tinder. Swipe, 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 swipe. Oh, there's a nice one. I'll swipe the other way. Did you know those apps? Do you know those apps are designed to make money? They're suckering you. Do you know they actually have on you? They have tutorial YouTube videos to help show you how to make them because they want you to buy their app so you can play their stupid little game. A covenant is not a game. It's not a game. You know you. Oh, that's a pretty picture. You swipe it. You go. You meet them. That's not them. <laughs> The picture says they're, you know, five foot eight and 120, and you look at them. What happened? To gain? Silly. All right. Next thing about the story. We'll see how the covenant view directs the person on what to look for in a bride. What should we look for in a spouse? I'd say on a covenant side, it's holistic. It takes into account the whole person. On the contractual, it's just about romance really it 's just about romance on a holistic side in a covenant you 're looking for a person to live your life with to also have generations of children with, and so you want somebody with a depth of soul, like a deep well, and since you 're trying to please God, you must not settle. you must be picky, you must be picky. take your time, say no a few hundred times, we live in a culture that. You say no, you're the jerk. Take your time, because God's blessing is worth the wait. Look at verses 15 and 16. So here's the servant praying for somebody, for Isaac to marry. And verse 15 says, "You got to." This is amazing. Before he'd finished praying, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethiel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. So this is relative, you know, down the line. But here's how it describes the girl. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from her jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and she drew enough for all his camels. So what does this say about her? Three things. Number one, the first is she's, she's beautiful. Beauty's a good thing, actually. It's all right. Like The Puritans used to think beauty was from the devil, so they'd marry an ugly woman. But beauty matters. And really, the reason why beauty matters is God wants you to be fruitful, so you, you need to be attracted to be fru- have fruit. Is kind of, well, as the old preacher would say, if the barn needs paint, paint the barn. You, know, I, you understand what I mean. People don't like that. But look at the second part of verse 16. The second part of verse 16 underline this circle it and let me read it in course verse 16 the girl was very beautiful comma a virgin no man had ever lain with her stop but you know people don't think that's they actually think that's a bad thing now As if purity is a bad mark of somebody. This is saying, look for that. Somebody who is pure. It really, really matters. And then the third thing about this girl, she was a servant with strong character. She gave the man a drink. She gave the camels a drink. She's a servant. She works. She's not sitting on the couch waiting for the man to get her chocolates all day long. What about a contract? Appeal is nine times out of ten purely romantic. It's all about a, how a person makes me feel. So really, in contrast, it's about appearance, it's about pleasure, and it's about attraction. Is We do things together that we like to do. But the goal really is maximum pleasure. That's the whole goal. And I'm just telling you, purity often runs flat up against Pleasure. So, what the contract does is the contract would rather have a good time than be with somebody that would say no. Pleasure will win every time because it revolves around eros. And then usually people get married because they have things in common and mostly because they're intoxicated by eros love, so everything they think they have in common. And then you have a baby, and you got to stay home with that baby. And I'm not having fun like I used to. I was thinking through this. I said it earlier. No wonder the average marriage lasts two years now. But no wonder why homosexuality and transgender stuff is so trendy. If it's not about a covenant and a future, and it's about pleasure now, the thing about pleasure is once you do something you want to try to experiment to do more because monogamy is so boring. Uh, let's experiment. And, that's, and the thing is, we aren't, we aren't well coached in this idea of covenant. And so when you hear two people that are of the same sex and they have same-sex attraction and, and they say, but everybody has a right to be happy. Yeah, that's because that's the view you're taking on this side. Is that the purpose of marriage, though? Somehow Christians have lost the importance of a covenant and God's blessing to the future generation. And the last thing I'd say, so what is the end game? What is the goal? What should we aspire to? A covenant marriage hopes to form a new nation of God-fearing people. So that's why it says in Genesis chapter 2, leave, cleave, and then conceive, be fruitful, multiply. And I still don't understand why people get married and they still hate kids. I just don't get it. Mainly it's because I want to be happy. On the contractual side, I think people get married because it's kind of the next thing to do. You know, we've been dating for a long time, so what are you supposed to do next? Get married. And then you hope that agreement will cause you to have a lifetime of happiness. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, divorce. Because a contract is about you, not God's name being glorified. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference, and it makes all the difference in the world. Bob, do you see the difference? Okay. Thanks, Bob. But here's the deal. Here's where this story gets really, to me, fascinating. And I want you to take a closer look. Because I believe there's far more going on in this story than how you can choose a bride. I believe it's detailing how God chose us and is still choosing his bride. And his bride is named the church. It is the story of eternal his eternal romance, which began before the creation of the world where he's choosing people to be his bride from all the nations. The Old Testament stories have purpose. It says in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, that the stories were written for you to know the mystery of Christ and to know the mystery of the church. Jesus said this while he was still on earth. He was walking, after he rose again, he was walking with two guys from the road to Emmaus and he's opening up the scriptures to them and then he said this to them and this is fascinating. He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Genesis is part of the law of Moses. So what he's saying, it's, it's called a hermeneutical principle called typology. If you look close, it's all pointing to Christ and the gospel. And this story is amazing. Let me show you. The, the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of laughter. That's his name. If you remember, two weeks ago, he was... The, one, the only son of Abraham, even though he wasn't the only son, but he called him the only son, my dearly beloved son, and he's known as the son of joy, son of laughter. Rebekah, her name in the Hebrew means two things, to tie, like to be tied by a knot. Her name also means, her also means captivating, Beautiful. Before we go into his story, do you remember how the last, the story ended with Isaac two weeks ago? Isaac, who's known as the only son of Abraham, the one that he dearly loved, do you remember he rose from the dead? How did he rise from the dead? Remember he, Isaac, Abraham was to take Isaac, bring Moriah up a hill, a three days journey. He was to kill him with a knife. But it says in Scripture, when God told him that he was to kill his son, he considered him as dead. Then they had to go three days' journey up a hill carrying wood. Remember that? Up a hill called Moriah, carrying wood. Moriah happens to be in the city of Jerusalem. And then he was going to sacrifice him as a sacrifice. And the angel held his hand, and it says in Hebrews, Abraham considered that as if God raised him from the dead. So last time we heard about Isaac was this guy who walked up a hill, was dead, and rose again. Interesting. Anyhow, next time we, the next time we see the story of Isaac, it's about a father who sends his servant to find a bride for the son that he loves. Huh. The father, the servant, and the son. He, let's talk about the servant. The servant is sent. And so if you see in 24-2, he said to, and look how he describes him, the chief servant. That's it's also the one that's in charge of all that he had. And so the word chief is the head or the one that has the power of the one who sent him. So the servant has all the power of the one who sent him. His name, it's not here, but it is in Genesis 15-2-3, is Eleazar. His name means God is my help. Huh? And he's sent to do the will of the Father. Look at verse 12. Then he prayed, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. So his success is his, the one who sent him success, the Father's success. Look at verse 33 through 44. 33. So he, uh, he sees Rebecca. Rebecca brings her to her family. They have a big dinner. They're they're eating around in their tent, a big dinner. And then so all of the food is displayed in verse 33. The food was set before him. This is a servant talking. But he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Why won't he eat? Because he's got a job to do. What's his job? Verse 34, I am Abraham's servant. I am sent to do the will of the father of the son of love. Let's jump to the New Testament. There's a guy by the name of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the same power as the Father. The Holy Spirit in the book of John, chapter, 15, chapter 14, verse 16, is known as the paraclete in Greek. Paraclete means helper, comforter. So the Father sends the helperer in John, and his job is to do the will of the Father. That's why he's sent. What is his job? He's looking for a bride to woo for the son of love. Huh. It's just a coincidence. All right, let's keep going. The next event is a bride is chosen. The bride is chosen sovereignly, but also it's her choice. Look at verse 21 and 22 of Genesis 24. Verse 21. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made the journey successful. So the Lord's leading. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca, it's a heavy piece of gold, and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And he gives it to her. Then he recounts the same thing over in verse um, 47. He's saying the same story of what happened to Laban. And the servant said, I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethaniel, son of Nahor. I put the ring in her nose and a bracelet on her arm. I bowed down and worshiped the Lord. I praise the Lord because he led her. And then if you look in verse 53, the servant brought out gold and silver and jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. So she gets a ring and she gets new clothes. and was led the, the, was led to find her so she was sovereignly chosen but then if you go to verse uh, 55 her brother and her mother replied let the girl remain with us 10 days and then you may go but he said to them don't detain me now that the lord has granted me success send me on my way meaning he wants to bring her back to where they came and her family wants her to stay he goes no i need to go now then verse 57 They said, hey, let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. So not only does God choose her, she chooses him. It's a both and. It's mutual. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit goes out, woos us, convicts us of sin, and draws us to love God. In the New Testament, it says... Jesus also says, to all who believe, it's mutual. It's the leading of the Father, but it's also the reception of the bride. You also must respond to the call. C.S. Lewis said, when I became a Christian, I felt like I was backed into the corner. It's the last thing I wanted to do, but it was the first thing I wanted to do was accept Christ. It's both and. It's mutual. But here's what's interesting. In the story of Rebecca, she's given a a ring, a nose ring and a ring and some bracelets that marks an identity that you've been bought and also robes. In the New Testament, it says in Ephesians 1, when you believe in God, the Holy Spirit is marked in you as a seal of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your inheritance. And he robes you with Christ's righteousness. White robes of purity. So now God sees you as pure. He tells a story, a parable Jesus says about the wedding supper. They have all these people invited and if you show up and you're not robed with a white robe, you don't get in. What a white robe is when I believe God forgives me of all my sins and he puts on his righteousness on me. Then the final thing is the marriage. Watch the marriage, how it happened. It's amazing. First of all, remember they wanted to have the girl remain and in verse 58, Nope, don't detain me. The Lord has granted me success. In other words, she has to decide. She doesn't get time to wait. And then starting in verse 61, then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. And they, it's a long trip. Now Isaac had come from Ber Lahai Roy, where he was living in negev which is the promised land. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet me? He's my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. He loved her. So you could say it like this, the groom was waiting for her. Remember, the groom wasn't allowed to leave the promised land and go to back to the land. He was waiting a long way away. She had to go a long distance. While he was waiting, he was praying for her, meditating, praying for her. And then when she arrives, he loves her. The New Testament's exactly the same thing. Did you know Jesus right now is waiting in heaven? For us? Did you know 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he's interceding for you? He's praying for you every day? And did you know that this journey, he wants to know now. Are you going to decide, well, give me 10 days. Let me go back and, you know, hang with my friends for a while. No. When he called his disciples, he said, follow me. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Well, just give me some time. Jesus said, you know, there's a lot of people that he invited, but everybody had to go back and take care of their business or bury their dead or Jesus said, then you're not worthy of my kingdom. Come now. For some of you, you've responded and it's like, man, this is a long trip. When is he going to come? But you know what he's doing? Don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and bring you so you can be with me where I am. John 14, 1 through 4. The final question for you is, are you ready to meet your groom? I want to end on this, Psalm 45. It's, I love this psalm. It's the marriage, marriage psalm of the king. It's called a messianic psalm because it's quoted about Jesus about five to six times in the New Testament. So this is about Jesus. And listen to what it says. And it's written to you, Psalm 45. He begins by saying, My heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. He's saying, I've got to tell you about this. I've got to tell you. My heart's stirred. Listen to this. And he's first talking about the groom. It says, He is the most excellent of men. There's nobody like him. His lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed him forever, or you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously. It means he's coming again to fight on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And that's a direct quote about David's son, is going to sit on the throne and rule this earth forever and ever, and he's the one that's the most excellent groom that's coming for you. It keeps saying, you, are, you love righteousness, you hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. There he is, the son of, the son of laughter, the son of joy. Being in the presence of Jesus are pleasures forevermore. All your robes are fragrance with myrrh and aloes and cassia from places adorned with ivory. The music of the strings make you glad. Daughters and king are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride and the gold of ophir. And then here's the implications to you. Listen, O daughter. Consider and give ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Let it go. Let all those things you cling to, let it go. Stop wanting what everybody wants. Forget that. Let it go. Why? Because of verse 11. The king is enthralled by your beauty, you're captivating to him. Honor him. He's your Lord. Are you ready? to meet him? Are you even his bride? That's the first question. Have you ever accepted him? No. Why not?